All right, um, I'm going to read. We're, the, the phrase we're going to look at tonight is this. I, of course, I believe sort of is assumed with each one of these lines, but the phrase we're looking at tonight is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, those two things. Um, and there's a reason why those two things are, are connected together, and there's a reason why Dr. Muller put them together in the book. There's a reason why they are back-to-back in the creed. Uh, because you cannot separate the two. They are necessarily dependent upon one another, as we will see. But uh, if you would, if you have your book with me, or if you have memorized this creed, uh, just uh, say this along with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As we look at this tonight, we're going to be looking, and you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles or even a pew Bible there in front of you if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be sort of working through uh, quickly because there's a lot there, and I'm not going to to deal with every little thing that we could come across in this passage, but Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47, because I think this passage in God and His glorious providence, again, has placed me where we're working through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, is falling right here where we are tonight. And this passage in particular gives us a very good picture of these two things that we look at tonight, the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. And as I said before, you you can't separate these two. They are necessarily uh, tied to one another. One affords the other, one is dependent on the other. Uh, So the communion of the saints is an outworking of, a necessary outworking of the existence of God bringing together and forming his church. So uh, a confession in this, uh, as is the truth with everything we've looked at in this, but a confession of this line should translate into a measurable, uh, measurable activity in our lives. It should be something that as we confess it and we understand what we're confessing, that it translates into how we live our lives. What does it mean? And we'll look at the words here in just a moment. But what does it mean to to say you believe in one holy Catholic or universal, as we'll talk about in a moment, church and the communion of the saints that make up that church? So does that mean anything in the day-to-day of our lives? It should, it must, if we truly believe in it. So that's what we're going to see. Um, introductory concerns here. You know, when you look at this, the phrase, the phrase contains in it things that we sort of kick around with at church, but maybe in some instances have let their, the true meaning sort of get lost. Because sometimes we can use words in church and, and even confess things, and we really don't stop to think about how those things affect us and how they, or how they should affect us. So as you look at this, just just by looking at the phrase, Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, think about this for a moment. Think about the word holy. Utterly set apart. Completely other than. Which is implying a distinction from the world. We are called to be holy because God is holy. What that means to be completely other than. And of course the word Catholic there, which a lot of people get hung up on because they think it's making a reference to the Roman Catholic Church, and it's not. The word Catholic means universal. So to say you believe in one holy Catholic Church, one universal church that is made up of believers from every time and from all places. This is the totality of the people of God who have been redeemed by Christ. And then of course the word church, this is an assembly or a gathering or a congregation. This word is first used by Jesus in Matthew 16. He says, I will build upon you, Peter, I shall call you the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, my gathering, my assembling of people. So even considering those words should, should fill out some of the significance for us that we say we believe in about this. And then necessarily comes the communion of saints. Now, the word communion is not in the Bible, but the word, as we will see in Acts chapter 2, having all things in common 
and that's where this comes from, is. Webster's Dictionary defines communion as this, an act of or instance of sharing. So automatically it throws us into Acts chapter 2 about having all things in common and sharing the things that we have. So in communion there's a common unity or community. There is, you know, this is where we get our word communication, where people are on the same level, sharing at some level with one another something about their lives. So these are what the saints should be doing. And this is interesting as well. If we believe this, this shows us that this is tied to the Holy Catholic Church because the word for saints is holy ones. And it's interesting that the same root word in both Hebrew, kadosh, and in Greek, hagios, they are both translated holy as the word for saints is actually the word for holy holy ones which tells us that these are indeed tied together so you can't separate them and i'm glad that that we look at look at them together tonight and that dr muller in his book even put them as one chapter because they go together if you if you take them apart then you lose something now a question i had as i started working through this and this i think this is Significant for us as we talk about the church and what we do as the church, when we think about where we fit in, in salvation history, what does it mean in God's, the the history of salvation as he has worked, as we see in the Old Testament and working up through what we see in the New Testament, how does this all come together? Where do the saints in the Old Testament fall with where we are in the New Testament? which we often say, you know, the church. But how do we tie all this together? So I want to read something for you. This is great. And this is, I stand with this guy on this issue, Edmund Clowney, um, book I had to read in seminary on the church. I mean, it's got a lot, a lot of stuff in here. It's a good book. But he, but he asked a question that I think is significant and helpful for us as we think about this issue. Because he asked a question in this book. It's actually a heading where he says, did the church begin at Pentecost? And, you know, varying people will answer that question in varying ways. But he He says this, and I I think it's helpful. He says, this first question finds an answer in the history of redemption. Pentecost did not create the people of God, but renewed them. Jews praise God in Gentile languages. Now, he's referencing uh, Acts chapter 2. Jews praise God in Gentile languages, the sign of the inclusion of the nations that accompanied the promised renewal of Israel in Christ. God's rebellious people had been disinherited, declared to be no people, and he's referencing Hosea 1.9 there. Yet, God in his mercy had still promised healing and restoration. That's Hosea 14.4 and 5. The prophets promised that from a spared remnant, the Lord would raise up a believing Israel who would walk in the steps of Abraham, circumcised not in their flesh, but in their hearts. In Christ, the true Israel, God's chosen and faithful servant, God's people are transformed, and there is hope for the Gentiles. Those who are united to Christ are united to Israel. They are Abraham's seed, Galatians 3. Members of the commonwealth of Israel, fellow citizens with the saints, God's covenant people. If the natural branches of God's olive tree have been pruned for unbelief, wild branches, the Gentiles, may be grafted in by faith in Christ. And it's Romans 11. But if one enters the people of God only by being united to Christ, what of the Old Testament saints? The New Testament gives a clear answer. Old Testament believers looked forward to Christ. They trusted the promises of God spoken by the prophets who themselves sought to understand more about the who and the when of God's coming salvation. The spirit who inspires the prophets is the spirit of Christ. The Old Testament tells the story of those who believed God's promises. Hebrews reminds us that Moses accounted disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. That's Hebrews 11.26. Now, such a statement is not an anachronism. In other words, he's saying the author of Hebrews didn't just slide that in there and assume anything. But he says Moses received God's promises that another prophet would be raised up, a prophet like him but greater, Deuteronomy 18.18. And he goes on to say this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will sit down with Peter, James, and John in the Feast of the Kingdom. The New Jerusalem of John's vision has the names of the the apostles on its foundations and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on its gates. Yet the change brought about at Pentecost was so startling 
that the New Testament writers could not look at the whole Old Testament or, or could look at the whole of the Old Testament as preparation. Although the saints of the Old Covenant waited in faith for the promise, they did not receive it. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's Hebrews 11.40. He says that, ber- that verse gets balance to our thinking. The key is God's one plan, a plan that unfolds so that his later and better covenant does not invalidate the earlier or exclude its participants. Rather, the greater blessings given to us are the very blessings they sought and that they will receive together with us. And I love this line. The two great administrations of God's one plan are distinguished in time and form, but not in God's purpose or in the nature of his salvation, then, now, and forever. We best understand the relation between them as we trace the word of the Spirit who shows us the treasures of Christ in the new and the old. The shadows of the old covenant are not deceptive wraiths, They are foreshadows that enable us to understand better that which comes in Christ. I don't know if you ever thought about that issue, about who we are in totality, the the totality of the church, how we stand in relationship to even the Old Testament saints. And I think you did a good job of explaining that, that God is doing one thing through Christ that binds us together. And that's exciting when you think about the issue of the communion of the saints that even when you look in Hebrews 11, when the author talks about that great cloud of witnesses that sees us, not, not witnessing us race, but witnessing to us of God's faithfulness by their testimony. And so that's very encouraging, should be very encouraging to us. You know, and this is, this is not a replacement theology, but, but it's a fulfillment issue. God moving and building his church because of the finished work of Christ. So this is something that should encourage us. And now look at, go ahead and I'm going to read through Acts chapter 2, the first, you know, those 37 through 47, and we'll look at this issue. Because the big two things here that we'll find in this chapter or in this passage are exactly what we're looking at tonight. The church, and we'll see the forging of the church where we see the coming of the Spirit, which has already happened in in reference to where we are tonight in, in Acts chapter 2, and then how they lived life together. So this is what Luke records for us. So again, the context is, is that the disciples, which we talked about last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit, they were waiting together in the, in the room there, and there was this violent rushing wind, and the gift came. You know, the, the tongues of fire divided and set on these, these Galileans who spoke no less than 16 different languages fluently, and were able to tell of the glory of God to those who were gathered there in Jerusalem. And, of course, there was an accusation, which we saw. These men are drunk. These people are full of new wine. And so Peter stands up and deals with that issue, and he gives the, the first sermon we find recorded in the book of Acts. It's a summary of his sermon. Otherwise, it would have been a three-minute sermon. And you know as well as I do that that doesn't exist, right? And that's not a shot at Brian. That's just... Right? That's, they just don't exist. I don't know if any pastor can do a three-minute sermon. If he does, you need to get him out of here. Um, so what you have here is Peter dealing. He, he quotes from Joel chapter 2 and says, this is what you're seeing here. This is a promise that God has given you, which is showing them you should have expected this. The Old Testament is full of promises of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And he's saying this is what's happening. So he mentions that takes them through that. Then he goes to Psalm 16, 8 and 11. Then he goes to Psalm 110 to show how these are fulfilled in Christ. And they come to this, this point. Because the last thing he says in his sermon there is, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now watch this. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that is all the people there in Jerusalem who come out and said, what is going on? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, the question I gave you last week was, what does this mean? What does this mean for my life that I've been filled with the Spirit of God in the same way that those believers were? I'm not disconnected from this passage. So the question here is, is is Peter told of the glory of God and conviction comes, these people say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Four times in the book of Acts, I mean, Jesus called the Spirit comforter, counselor, the one who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In the book of Acts, look 
Luke refers to him four times as a gift. That's awesome. For the promise, he says, um, you receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000. I'm going to stop there for now because that's that first section which talks about the Holy Catholic Church. I mean, this is what we're, we're dialing down to this here because we're answering the question, where does it come from? What does it mean? This is what we see here, the, the, this New Testament expression, this birthing of the New Testament church. What, what happened here and what does it mean for me? Now, this is all about, as we'll see in a moment, this is all about community. And community is a big buzzword in, in churches today, this issue of community. But what we see from this passage in just a moment, as we get into the rest of it, is that community is not something that should cost you nothing. It's not just something that you decide to be a part of, but it's in something you decide to invest in, which will cost you. It's, and I think, I mean, I know I have taken it lightly, but community is something that requires of me, as we'll see, a, a loosening of my grip on everything I think is mine and starting to look for the needs of others and how I can be a part of ministering to those needs and meeting them, ministering to those people and meeting those needs. So not just something you decide to be a part of, but something God is creating by his spirit because this is unique. Remember I said you don't find the word community or communion in the Bible, but you find this word koinonia, common, which is oftentimes translated fellowship, but this is the issue. It's dependent upon the Spirit of God. True biblical communion must have that aspect. You and I can't have communion if we don't have the Spirit of God. Because some of you in this room are so radically different from me in the things you like and, and in personality that outside of the Spirit of God, we probably just wouldn't have anything to do. Not that we'd be hostile toward each other, but we just probably wouldn't have anything to do with each other. But because the Spirit of God resides in us and has fundamentally changed us, we are deeply connected and should have the ability to have a deep and meaningful communion. That's why I could ask you guys, hey, pray for me. i got a surgery coming up. Because I love you, and I think that you would pray for me. And that's a good thing. Only the Spirit of God can, can, can make me assured of that as you come in here tonight. And hopefully the converse is exactly the same. So when you look at this, and you saw that question there, um, remember that God is moving to undo what sin has done. That Christ is reversing the curse. And part of that is this running from community. Because left to my own devices, and you left to your own devices, the default is isolationism. To one degree or another. And I'm not saying you don't, you know, I want to be by myself. I don't think, I don't know if anybody that says, I just want to be by myself. But when I say isolationism, I mean I want to hide from you. We'll have a certain level of communion, but there are things I don't want you to see and don't want you needling into. You don't do that to me, I won't do that to you. That's sort of the agreement, but, but God is undoing that. So you start to see why community begins to cost you because it's a tearing down of those types of walls. So when you think about this scene, um, this is when they heard this. Obviously, Peter had, had said something, and, and what he had said was that God was fulfilling his promise, that he was making all things new in Christ. The promise was for them and their children, for all who are far off, which we'll see in just a moment is a radical proposition for them. But one of the first things we see here is this issue of conviction. We talk about what it means to be in the church. This is an indispensable ingredient. This one and the one that comes right after it, the one that this leads to. This issue of conviction, these men, it says, were men and women were pierced to the heart. Now, that's biblical language to say that they were cut to the very core of who they are. I mean, everything that was sort of stable that they stood on had been sliced. Hopefully you've experienced that. And conviction isn't, isn't necessarily, a, necessarily a pleasant thing. That's why I think the Bible uses that language, cut to the heart. It's, it can be traumatizing, which it's, it's meant to push us for a solution, to push us towards relief. 
So, and I would say this, that true conviction, true effectual conviction will bring about appropriate action. Because they're asking, what shall we do? They recognize that that, that, that level of being pierced is, is pushing them to do something. You don't just live with that and go, oh, that stinks. You want to do something about it. And they know, what do we need to do here? Everything that you've said, Peter, and he said some pretty bold things, some pretty deep things about God's foreknowledge and, and his crucifying of Christ, but their responsibility. And so that cut them. And it leads to this. Look in verse 38. What did Peter tell him? Repent. He said something else too. We'll get to that. <laughs> Repent. Now, there is no possibility of entering into biblical community without having experienced conviction that leads to repentance. That's the indispensable pair. Conviction that leads to repentance is absolutely a priori to you being in the community of faith. That's a radical step. You know, in the word, Peter's saying, look, change your mind. And when he says that, it's not just change the way you think about something, but change, because of that thinking, you radically change the way you live. And remember who he's talking to. Right now he's talking to all these gathered in Jerusalem, to Jews who thought they were okay, who had assumed because of their position, because of their having received the law, because of these things that they sort of stacked up just like the Apostle Paul did, that they were all right. And Peter says, repent. And be baptized. Now, that verse, because of the way it's worded there, has been ripped out of context and misused um, a lot. And, and obviously, uh, we want to avoid the mistake of using this verse as to, say, to say that Peter is saying that baptism is essential to salvation. That this is baptismal regeneration. That is not what he is saying. Because later on in Acts, we will see very clearly in Acts chapter 10 that baptism is after salvation. In the household of Cornelius. Peter himself in 1 Peter 3.21 is sure to make us understand that the issue of baptism is about an appeal to God, not the water. Okay. Peter is saying this to these Jews because baptism, you know, baptism is not a Christian invention. The Jews did a rite of purification with water. And for him to say, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized. He's telling them, you're, everything you've trusted in is nothing. You're not okay because of your perceived election as God's people. It's not based on him giving you the law, but the grace that comes in Christ that you must embrace. So, And you could legitimately argue, uh, a New Testament professor, John Polhill, um, who, would, who would translate this, be baptized on the basis of your sins having been forgiven. And he said that was a completely legitimate way to translate that verse. But regardless, what Peter's getting at is the radical notion that these Jews needed to do just that. Submit to a rite of cleansing that was reserved for converts to Judaism in their minds. So that you could see why they would think, I don't need to do this. And again, it's, it's no easy thing. It's no light thing. When you think about what it means for you to confess, I believe in one holy Catholic church, don't, it's not a light thing for you to be where you are, placed in the body of Christ by his grace. So he says, in the name of Jesus Christ. He's not giving a formula here. Not in this case. He's not, he's not going against what Jesus said in Matthew 28, but he's designating the meaning and the occasion for the baptism itself. It's not a purification, right? But it's the embracing of Christ. That's what he's pushing them to. To embrace Christ as the sole means of their standing before Yahweh. He is the Messiah given for them. So this was costly to them. But again, he hits the, the next issue there is he hits on the issue of promise in verse 39. He says, the free gift of the Holy Spirit is for you. Now, here's what's, here's what's interesting here. In verse 40, when he says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. They would not have flinched when he said, the promise is for you and your children. I mean, that's, that's just covenant theology, right? The promise is for you. They wouldn't have flinched at that, but then he pushes past that, doesn't he? And this becomes an issue in the church, as we'll see in Acts 15. This is something they have to work through. He says, and for all who are far off. Who's he referencing? 
far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Gentiles. So that is radical to them. So you can see how this issue is like a lightning bolt striking right there in the middle of Jerusalem. Peter shared the gospel. And again, keep in mind, we're talking about what it means to be part of this church. It's a promise. So God is, you know, he's referencing that God will make his people from every tribe, tongue, nation, skin color, accent, background, personality, struggles, quirks, ticks, whatever it may be. God is forming a people for his own glory. And there's an urgency here too. I don't know if you caught there in verse 40 and following. It says, he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There's an urgency in Peter about the gospel. And God was faithful. Look in verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's amazing to watch what God did in that moment. Peter was faithful to the message. He didn't pull any punches. Uh, He didn't try to make it relevant. I mean, he was saying some things would have been very unpopular if not for the Spirit of God convicting and pushing to repentance, drawing these people to God. So when you think about saying, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, don't let that be some light phrase, you say. Because it's just as much an amazing thing for you and I to be sitting here tonight and to be able to say, Jesus Christ is Lord and my only hope in life and in eternity is that he has died for my sin and been raised for my justification. For us to be able to confess that in truth is a miracle. And so it, it's not a light thing for us to be in this body that the creed calls the holy, that is set apart, Catholic, that is united with believers from every age in every area, church, the called out and assembled in the name of Jesus Christ. And so think about this for a moment. How does that part of the confession, I said earlier, if we confess it, it should translate into a measurable difference in the way we live. How does that affect us? How does that reality, I want to hear from you guys, how, how has it affected you? I and mean, think about where you came from, maybe who you are when left to yourself, and how does it affect you? What are some things that you joyfully enter into that you know are a result of God uniting you to Christ and placing you in the body? Because here's the interesting thing. Um, You look in that verse, it says he added about 3,000 souls that day. He, he He didn't add them to the church without saving them, and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. And we'll talk about what it means to be in a local congregation as an expression of that, which is extremely important. But how does it affect you guys? Just throw it out there. Do you, is my question clear, or am I too cloudy on that? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and 
absolutely. It was, I've said this before, I think, and it, it, this was in, it, in reference to preaching, but it's also in reference to that sort of thing. Spurgeon said the, the preacher who seeks to be original or nothing at all usually ends up being both. Yeah, that's true. If there's a danger in that. Um, yeah, it's a scary thing to... to Absolutely. I mean, that would be scary if you think, man, Calvin didn't see this. Nobody saw this. Spurgeon didn't see this. You be careful, you know. Not that, not that God has given complete wisdom to all these men, but, yeah, there's a safeguard in, in walking in the steps of those who have gone before us, for sure. Absolutely. What else? Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. That's great. That was one of the most encouraging things to me in, in this chapter was there was a point there where Dr. Muller really hit, and I, and I could feel the passion he was writing this with. He's saying, you know, you, you are not alone. You know, re regardless, you are not alone. And that is such good news and such a comfort. There are times when you will feel that way, and you have to remind yourself and preach to yourself. I'm not the, you know, I'm not the, I'm, I don't have the, uh, the, the uh, Elijah syndrome here and, and, and run off and... <laughs> You know, I'm not alone. So that's a good thing. Um, well, okay, the, ne the, last, the next part of that chapter, the last part of chapter 2 of Acts, this is where you see, because what we're getting into now is the, uh, the issue of communion. What does that look like? And I think this answers the question that I just asked. If we say we believe and confess in one holy Catholic church, how is it measurable in our lives? What does it push us to do that normally we would not do and not be a part of? And this is a great picture of that. So... Um, Starting in verse 42, Luke goes on and says this, And they, speaking of those who came to Christ with the apostles there and the disciples that were uh, gathered, he says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had, here it is, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds uh, as any, to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So we start to get a picture here of what the day-to-day -day for these believers, what the day-to-day -day for the church looked like. So... It had a characteristic to it. And I would say it's this that you see in verse 42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to certain things. And the word devotion is a term of affection. I mean, is it not? I mean, we, we devote ourselves to things that we care about. I'm devoted to my wife and children. I better be. There are certain things that we are devoted to because there's an internal connection that we have. And these believers were devoted as we look at this, to certain things and most notably to one another. The things that they did revealed that they were devoted to one another. Um, the first thing he mentions there, and, and these are all necessarily dependent on one another. The first thing is this issue of learning. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And this gets at what Brian was saying. You know, this, this is the one holy Catholic, and Dr. Muller puts in there, apostolic church, built on the doctrine of the apostles, that they were devoting themselves to sound teaching, that that is an important thing. And, and regrettably, in the minds of some, that's, that's not an important thing. We try to separate this issue of community from having anything to do with 
sound, solid, deep, challenging doctrine that makes you grow and struggle and move forward. And you can't do that. This, this building of community is dependent upon that. I mean, it's notable that that's the first thing that Luke tells us they were devoted to, was that very issue. Um, being devoted to the scriptures and, and you know, knowing, knowing that it's not, just, it, it's not the pastor's job to completely, or the Sunday school teacher's job, or any of the elders, to completely carry your growth in Christ. But you must chase down and devote yourself to sound biblical teaching. Now, that's part of it, by the grace of God. But it shouldn't stop there. That's just the beginning. And then, as I said, these were connected because the next thing here is the issue of loving. We must be devoted to learning if we'll be devoted in our loving. Because it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And there's that word again. Community. Koinonia. They were devoted to that. And there are so many things in our culture and in our time that keep us from being devoted to that issue. I think, and I'm guilty of this, I, I think sometimes I rely too much on just the Sunday-to-Sunday touch with the believers in this church. I mean, I understand that, again, because of our culture and the responsibilities we have and the things we do, that it's tough to sometimes do otherwise. But we need to be creative and look for ways that we don't just see each other once or twice a week and think that's okay. But we try to start investing. And I know we can't, every person can invest in every other person's life to that level. But, but we need to think about it. You know, Sunday evening, if you were able to take a part in the Feast and Fellowship, was a, was a great time. And it's a part of this issue. Fellowshipping with one another to the degree you invest in others' lives and you learn about them and you get to know one another you can pray for one another. You can bear one another's burdens. All of those things. Um, Luke uses that term, uh, fellowship, and it's, it's, it's the first usage here uh, that we find in the New Testament. It's some, and, and that goes to the point. It's, we find it after the Spirit came. And so it's something new that God has done. Something deeper than just hanging out. So... The connection again here as we look is uh, to be devoted in our love. To be devoted to teaching is to be devoted to love for one another. And in that way we are unhindered in our worship. Do you think we can worship as we ought to? And I'm just talking corporate gathered worship here. If we are not devoted to one another. I mean if we come in as individuals isolated in, in many, many areas of our lives and sort of standoffish. and Because this is the problem with I have to tread carefully here. This is a problem with a lot of really big churches that, there, that there, you, can, you can slip in and hide. Do you think that you can really worship? Now, you can get emotional and you can get caught up in the, everything that may be going on, but are you truly unhindered in your worship and devotion if you are not vitally connected to those you've been placed in the body with in your local congregation? Is it a hindrance if you're not. So again, I, these things aren't placed in this order or, or placed next to one another uh, without incident. They, they're here for a reason. So they were devoted to, and the way he puts it is the breaking of the bread and to prayer. Now I think that is this issue of remembering, you know, they're gathering together and we could talk about the Lord's Supper and we can also talk about the agape feast that they had, but, but they were coming together, sharing, because Eating together is a covenant activity. And this is why you find in the Old Testament that there were covenant meals. When God would enter into covenant, there was usually a meal. That's why you find Melchizedek bringing out bread and wine. So this activity is, in particular here, is a commemoration of the sacrifice of Christ. Coming together, breaking bread from house to house sharing their meals with one another, and a prayer. So there's this issue of remembering the sacrifice of Christ, crying out to God. I, th I think this is like a daily worship. It's an attitude of worship. And you look at verse 43, there's this perpetual um, 
God's showing himself very really. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. Now there's the issue of communion. Because this is where, we, where the rubber hits the road with breaking your grip on everything you have that you consider to be yours. And community is absolutely essential for the church. They were together They had all things in common. They were using their time and everything they had to build up the relationship that they had been brought into because of Christ. And this is very significant. Um, You look at verse 45, we, we see this and it seems strange to us. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any has had need. This is not communism. It's communion. There's a, here's the big difference. Communism is a legally mandated or legislated sharing of your possessions. You cannot have, you must give to everyone else. Communion is a compulsion because of concern to share what you have with those in need. It's very different. And this is what we're to be about. Because notice what, what drove it here was, as anyone might have need. Simply put, it's just making sure we're meeting needs as we're able to, to meet needs, the needs of one another. And there's consistency here because he says they did it day by day. So this was their life, and this is what I wanted you to see. We can get caught up sometimes in talking about um, and, and thinking about church as some, somewhere I go and something I do, an activity. When the reality is, it's something we are. And we have to start changing our perspective from doing church to being the church. And living the implications of the gospel out together. And that will change the way we do things. Um, When it says they went from house to house, but also they went into the temple. I think what we see there is this... um, Going into the temple, that, that, was, that was the grounds in which they were doing, they were sharing their faith. This was getting the gospel out. And then this fellowship and communion was the breaking of bread from house to house, sharing meals together, which we talked about. With one mind, together with gladness and generosity or sincerity of heart. And when that happened, look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people. A a life that is, when you're walking in the Spirit and when we're doing it together, it will get, just what we talked about last week, it will get noticed because it doesn't come naturally to the world. So having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, which I think speaks to this issue of us being the church, doing the things that He's called us to do and watching God do what He's promised to do and not getting the cart before the horse thinking that we need to do what only God can do, but just being faithful for what he has called us to do. Um, Ken Hughes, I think we can wrap up, some of this whole, whole passage this way. Um, pastor Ken Hughes, he was a pastor and he taught at Wheaton College for a while. Um, he says this, the church where the spirit reigns, and that's what we see here because in Acts chapter 2, this was the great change agent that came. The church where the spirit reigns relates to the word in teaching relates to each other in fellowship, relates to God in worship, and relates to the world in witness. And I would add that all of these things are done together because it's the church. We are the church. So when you think about the communion of the saints, what are some of the things that you guys, what, what does that elicit, that phrase, the communion of the saints? When you think about how you seek to do that in your own lives with other believers, what are some of the things you are able to do? Yeah, no, I don't think that's tried at all. I think that I think that goes to what we're saying that some of the things that we that the world might even see as insignificant. A meal, we understand there's more significance to that. And because of our, our union in Christ and, and being united to one another in Him, 
it has a deeper impact. And I think we do feel that. Dan, were you going to say something? Give me that look. So you, <laughs> so you have that look when you want to say something. <laughs> Absolutely. Those are good. And you, and you know when you're having it. <laughs> when you're having those types of conversations, you feel that deep connection and fellowship. Absolutely. Yes, sir. It's a good reminder. Yeah, it is. That's a very good verbal reminder of the reality of what our disposition should be towards one another. Absolutely. Yeah, Dan. Absolutely. I, you know, I think of what the author of Hebrews said when he said, you know, you, you, when he's talking to, to that original audience, he said, you know, you've, some of you have, have uh, visited fellow brothers and sisters in prison. Some of you have had your homes plundered, been sawn in two. I mean, yeah, it was a, there was a very high cost. And so that sort of gets at what we're saying. Community really should be costly. And we don't even see it at that, that level. But yeah, uh, which speaks to the to the question of how how committed and dedicated to and how value what value do we place on cultivating this in our lives this issue of community uh, and and again and going back to my own mind not just being church is something I do on Sundays or certain points during the week but but something I'm a part of that is a primary shaper of my life as it is is visible on the outside people see me not just say oh he goes to church but this is a, a believer in Jesus Christ whose life is shaped by that reality and as a result he's a part of this group of people and as I said earlier you know this God placing in the text here you know adding to their number day by day those who were being saved I said you know he didn't he didn't save them without adding them to the church he didn't add them to the church without saving them that is that's extremely important because this expression, we talk about the, the church universal, which is what we've been talking about, but, but the expression of that that we experience week by week, day by day, is in the local congregation. You know, being a part of, and you know, there's some people when they're thinking, think that, you, know, you don't, I don't have to be a member of this or that church. I'm a part of the church, so I can bounce around and do whatever I want to and go where I want to, and that's, that's unbiblical and dangerous. I mean, the Paul's letters to Timothy make very clear that there were lists of widows and lists of those who needed to be taken care of in the local congregation. So, the degree that your life can be examined and the degree that you can do what, what we see taking place here as far as meeting needs of other people, investing in their lives, communing deeply with them, will be dependent upon your being a part of a local congregation. It's... It, you know, that is not an option. You must be united to. I mean, how can a group of elders be responsible for the overseeing and care of your souls if you are not a part of that local congregation? They don't even know you because you flitter here and there. Don't do that. 
you need to be a part of it. It's, it's, you know, it's for your own good because I've said this before and I would say it with a, a number of things, you know, perseverance, uh, sanctification, you know, name them down the line. They're a community project. You don't do these things on your own. You will not persevere on your own. God's means of persevering you is placing you in the body of Christ, and you need brothers and sisters around you. Same thing with your sanctification. You know, if you're going to grow in holiness, you need people that will go needle you when they see it. So I need, you won't like it, but that, that's what you need. That's what I need. So, yeah, I would encourage you to, and I don't, I, I don't, obviously I don't know everybody in here in your situation, but I would just encourage you, you know, if, if you're not a part of, I would say in particular, this local congregation, which I'd venture to guess most of you are, I would say, uh, plug in, settle down, place yourself under uh, the authority of the elders and the, devote yourself to the teaching of the apostles and the breaking of the bread with the saints and just be a part for your own good, for sure. Um, anybody have anything else before we wrap up tonight? Thank you guys so much for putting up with me for three Wednesdays in a row. Um, I told my wife, I said, don't let me do three in a row and again. Don't, make, don't remind me not to, to jump in on that next time. Sort of space them out. It gets a little hectic, but that's good. I, I love it. Um, absolutely love it. But uh, sometimes it's, it's hard. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's pray we'll, and we will be dismissed. Lord, once again, um, we come to you with great thanks in all that you have united us to Christ and placed us in the body. And I pray that that is indeed the case with everyone here tonight. And Father, if anything I've said tonight has, has been unhelpful or, or even harmful, I pray, Lord, it fall away and be forgotten to the degree that I wouldn't or haven't spoken truth regarding something. I pray that you would remove that as well. Father, I pray that you would indeed encourage and strengthen us and keep before our minds the necessity of us investing deeply in the lives of one another as you have drawn us together and by your providence placed us in this place to serve you and to care for one another. We thank you for your goodness that is demonstrated in that. We thank you for Jesus who has made all this possible. We pray that we would leave here tonight and we would go out into our responsibilities tomorrow with the gospel in our mouths and a sensitivity to speak to those around us who desperately need to hear the good news of Christ. Father, we ask all this in his name. Amen.